This is Nature's Touch. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. We invite you to sit by our virtual campfire, and I'll share some interviews through this special series called Nature's Touch, Climate Change is Here. Interviews that are truly inspirational to me and focus on our global concerns. Been spending a fair amount of time in the summers recently rafting on the upper Yukon and just seeing whole riverbanks that were permafrost thawing and collapsing right into the river. I used to listen to other radio shows and they were like, oh, not in our lifetime. You know, we're talking in another generation. Now it's like, nope, it's here. It seems to be an economic structure that is defeating environmental values at almost every turn in the United States. Environmental alcoholism, this time will be different. No running water, no flush toilet, and then multiple generations living in one home. So that's just, right. that's just the recipe for a, a virus. Because in a bookshelf in the new office building that was their old grocery store or a stack of pieces of paper that came from the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation. And the pieces of paper all say the same thing. They go tick, 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 tick. Topics of discussion have been about the Elwha Dam deconstruction and river restoration project. The other topic being discussed has been about a village in Alaska called Quinnahawk, where the loss of permafrost and erosion of land due to the rising sea levels are having devastating effects on many villages, including theirs. Without intervention and policy changes, the consequences are dire. It's critical that the United States support and encourage their state and federal governments to make climate change a top priority. This means everyone working together to make policy changes and provide funding in order to slow down and reverse the impacts. This is Robin Carnine of Namapa First Peoples Radio. You're listening to Nature's Touch with host Robert Lindahl. Thanks for joining us by the campfire. Don't go away. Thank you for tuning in today. This is your host of Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm Robert Lundahl. Our very special guests today are Professor Enrique Lanz Oka of the Department of Geography and Environmental Science, Hunter College, New York City. Dr. Lanz Oka is one of the founders of the Greenbelt Society at http colon slash slash greenbeltsociety.wordpress.com. Dr. Lanz Oka received his PhD in geography from the CUNY Graduate Center in 2013. His dissertation investigates the social, political, and ecological foundations of the Elwha Dam Removal Project. Completed in 2013 in Washington State, it's the largest dam removal in history. He is currently expanding this project to include recent dam removal projects around the globe and the influence of climate change on dam infrastructure. Lanz Oka's broader research interests include river restorations, energy resource conflicts, energy landscapes, and traditional irrigation communities. Developer of micro-remediation technologies since the 1990s, Howard Sprouse worked as a consultant to Battelle's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Squim, Washington. 
His work assisted projects aimed toward remediation of petroleum hydrocarbons, biological agents, pathogen degradation, and biofiltration of agricultural runoff. Howard has worked for the Department of Botany, University of Washington, conducting fungal ecology research in Olympic National Park, and is a well-known lecturer on the subject throughout the Pacific West and Alaska. Howard Sprouse, he is working with Intrinsics Technologies at the NASA Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California, on the integrated biological approach, which combines phytoremediation and mycoremediation. A little personal background here, as a filmmaker, I worked in and around the Elwha River and Olympic National Park for many years. And my takeaway from the experience has been the idea that nature is inherently regenerative and that we've sacrificed sustainable resources of long-term benefit for short-term profit motive, often throughout our history. The Elwha Dam removal and ecosystem restoration has illuminated to many that nature does best when she's left alone to restore and rebuild without pressure from development or extraction, to play a part in weaving the web of life from the microscopic to the megafauna. And don't forget people. Indigenous peoples have played a role in this ecosystem since time immemorial. This is Robin Carnina of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for joining Robert Lindahl and myself for a campfire conversation on nature's touch. Worried about climate change and other environmental issues? So are we. Thanks for tuning in. We all can make a difference. Well, where do we start this story? I guess Howard told me at one point that you came over for dinner in Port Angeles. Howard and I met each other in, in a type of, I don't know how can I define this because I don't remember. Now, it was like a type of um, Chambers of Commerce uh, convention in Port Angeles. Uh, I don't remember now the name of the hotel, but uh, perhaps Howard knows this name. Uh, we were there perhaps, I don't know, I guess perhaps 100 people. Um, and that was in those moments when, I don't know why, it was perhaps a coincidence, like many things in, in our lives, that uh, Howard and I started to talk each other uh, about the Elwa and about the restoration of the river. And since then, uh, this is when this type of communion started, I am going to say. No? Now, from that point, uh, yes, uh, we started to discuss about uh, Howard's uh, experiences of the river. And I was explaining to him uh, my experiences also uh, through my fieldwork doing the dissertation, the doctorate dissertation, and even Howard was very polite, not only inviting us uh, to go to his house, but also he inviting me to go to one of his friends, Ed Snyder, uh, um, that I think Howard told me he died very recently, and it was really, I can tell you, that conversation between Howard, Ed Snyder, and his wife, and I was really fascinating. Um, yes, this is how we started to exchange information about our experiences uh, of the Elwha River, no? And flash forward, 
uh, Howard uh, and his company have a project now in Alaska, which is posing many issues, putting many issues and topics on the, on the forefront um, for us. And one of them being climate change and, uh, and its impacts, how uh, in the line of that project, um, you know, we're seeing different um, impacts from having to move um, the village to uh, the discovery or the rediscovery of the old village uh, to um, the remediation efforts that have to take place because of the, the permafrost melting and the, the tanks leaning and leaking and those um, kinds of things. So with that, with that as the scenario now, uh, I will say that I'm amazed that we can go to a place, thanks to Howard, and take a snapshot of something that we otherwise uh, normally wouldn't see, you know, in, in tangible photographs and, you know, real life drama, like we were on the, we were talking about John Hunter and his COVID concerns just, just now, but that's the hot news, right, off of the, the press. And, and in that environment, you know, we care about what's going on up there and we care, care about them and this larger thing, this larger process of coming to awareness around an environment, you know, and hurdles that are being faced and opportunities that may present themselves. So I just wanted to give you a lead in with that big picture and let, let you um, follow up on that from your perspective as a professor, you know, your engagement with students and, and, and all that. Do, do you have any, you know, professional, personal uh, thoughts here that can help us understand the educational side of it? I mean, first of all, I have to say thank, as you say, thank you very much for Howard that is, invite, uh, is inviting us for this Arctic experience, I am going to say, there in the Bering Strait in Alaska. I mean, educationally speaking, uh, Robert, uh, this experience is fundamental for very different reasons. Uh, first of all, because of it is creating a visibility of marginal communities, of the indigenous, mm, that most of the times, as you know very well, had been marginalized, not only by the United States, by, by in general, corporations, private and public agencies, eh, not only in North America, but around the world. You know, it was the visibility, obviously, is really crucial because this project is making visible this marginality. Second, because it's giving us a type of framework to understand and to make public what is happening, especially in the Arctic areas. Global warming and climate change are affecting everybody around the world, correct? But in the Arctic, regions in the Arctic ecosystems, the global warming is impacting in a much bigger scale compared to the standard and average areas around the world. And the issues are really, really very sharp in these Arctic areas. Think about the permafrost, think about the destruction of the ecosystems, very radical temperatures. In other words, this is really fundamental, educationally speaking, pedagogically speaking, because you and Howard with this project are able to demonstrate 
to thousands or millions of people, what is going on in these Arctic territories? Mm? And third, I am going to say, ecologically speaking, globally speaking, uh, in terms of education. No? Uh, unfortunately, we are living in a type of pedagogic crisis in our country and around the world. I mean, only we need to think about who is the main director of the educational department in our country. Miss Bexie DeVos, a person that during many years tried to dynamite the public educational system in this country, together with some type of private forces trying to put down the education of many communities in our country, this is why the project that both of you are doing there is fundamental. It's fundamental because it's telling all of these people that don't have the access to see this with their eyes, uh, what is going on there, ecologically speaking, socio-economic, politically uh, speaking, uh, with these communities that are becoming visible. No? This is why in terms of education, uh, this project uh, can be really crucial, no? for sure. We were talking about um, COVID and the new requirements for communication and outreach. And part of that is built into the project in that uh, Howard's uh, remediation strategies on the ground in Quinnahawk have to be documented and managed. And, and as a result of, uh, of, of COVID, we thought of using live streams in a creative way um, to do that. Um, I think that's facilitated the, the group that we're involved in. Is that your opinion? Do you think there's uh, some sort of future for this? Here, this is thrust upon us. Like, is there a way that you see that it becomes creative and self-sustaining, you know, at least in, in the sense of, um, of, of being inspiring or inspiring action or participation? I think for me it's becoming, and I, and I can tell you this, uh, uh, Robert, uh, I, fer I prefer to be in person in any dialogue, even mm -hmm. in the classes or in conversations. But because of these unprecedented times of epidemic with COVID-19, it's fascinating to think in this way because this type of digital platforms are opening new channels that were unthinkable before. Like for instance, yeah, I, am, I prefer, I would be, or I prefer to be with you and Howard now in person in the same room talking about this. But this communication is astonishing. And I think even after or thinking about in a type of post-COVID period, COVID-19 period, I am thinking about that obviously to continue with in-person meetings, but this is telling you something. We need to continue with this digital interaction. And we need to start creating perhaps other type of pedagogic and conversational mechanisms like you can be in class, but at the same time you are under a Zoom communication. Why? Because it's becoming very clear. I think it's going to be very difficult in the future. Even our group is constructed in the distance. Without these technologies, I am totally sure 
it could be impossible, this conversation. Not just because of the technology, it's because perhaps we didn't know each other. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, I think, yes, I think I am able to see an enormous potential here for sure. Or think about how you are going to broadcast this experience for Alaska. It could be impossible right. in a different way. Right. It's very close to emergency communications. Correct. I, I mean, I used to work for a public agency, and I recall that their budget for communications for video in that case was based around emergency communications. That if something should happen or there should be a downturn or a, uh, an event, you know, that that even the, the basic ability to see what's there becomes um, extremely important and to, and to see who, who's there, you know? And that was uh, many years ago when we were relying on taped video, you know, and then we'd send off a taped video in the mail, you know? Exactly. Or think about during really centuries how the communication, let me say, between the metropolis and the colonies was by mail. Think about, I remember, there is a fascinating book. I don't remember now the title, but the book is based upon, the main argument is based upon confidence. Mm -hmm. You were using a letter from the capital, in this case was under the Spanish Empire, using a letter with a command from the governor in Spain, going to America, taking five, six months, if the letter arrives, because obviously storms, whatever, Think about the governor of the colony receiving the information, meditating about the answer, and returning again to Spain. You know, there was more than one year. Can you imagine if Howard and you are going to be in the same uh, information dynamic with Alaska? It could be really very difficult. That. This is why these technologies, I think, are opening... Uh, unexpected possibilities here, especially for the visibility of these communities, because you are able to make them visible now. How do we adapt ourselves and our conversations? That is a good question, because I think there is an, obviously, for me, always there is an ecological background. Conversations or our experiences or anything that we want to do or to think is ecological. Mm -hmm. And our ideas about nature are constantly changing. Not only we, but because we are integrated in a civilization. Our perspective of nature is changing. I mean, you are a filmmaker, correct? Mm -hmm. Think about just films from the 80s and the 90s. Most of them even were not talking about anything about global warming or climate change. Nowadays, you have global warming even in the dinner, I am going to say, of, of a TV series. Now, we are changing very fast. Not only the system, the civilization, but we integrated there. The conversation that Howard and I uh, had, I don't know, it was perhaps 10 years ago, 9 years ago in this hotel, in this convention in... Um, in Port Angeles, first of all, not everybody was talking about climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even when you were asking people about the Elwa River, 
very few people were connecting the restoration of the Ewa River and global warming. Nowadays, yeah, there are connections. And there is another important thing in that meeting. Uh, it was a chambers of commerce meeting. The main background was about business. And yeah, they can be talking ecologically speaking, correct, for sure, but the environment was not the main goal for many people in that meeting. Mm -hmm. This is why when I was there, I was like, I am going to say, like, uh, very lost. <laughs> because many people were talking a different language. Mm? This is why our conversations are changing. Mm? And I am totally sure, even I don't know how our conversations are going to be even five years from now. But yes, we are mutating. Our perspectives are mutating. Uh, our ideas of nature are mutating. Uh, I'm Howard Sprouse. I'm the founder of The Remediators. The Remediators was formed in 2005 for the purpose of commercializing micro-remediation. So we commercialized micro-remediation in 2005. We're the first company in the world, I believe. We kind of cut our teeth on, on doing petroleum cleanups. This very exciting moment, let me just preface that again because it's really been something. The Remediators has landed a barge in Quinnahawk, Alaska. We have a mycotreatment sitting on the ground in the community of Quinnahawk. And Quinnahawk is a long ways away from here. This time we, we made our, the mycotreatment for uh, cleaning up a fuel tank uh, farm, a spill at their fuel tank farm and um, uh, manufactured that down at our, our facility here, west of Seattle. And we uh, put it on Alaska Marine Lines, uh, their last uh, barge and tug for the season that goes up to uh, Northwestern Alaska into the subarctic where Quinnahawk is and the Arctic region north of that, Nome and so forth. Quinnahawk is uh, in uh, Good News Bay, which is uh, uh, kind of the northern area of the, of the uh, Bering Sea, um, Crystal Bay, kind of around the corner. Today, it's cold. Um, it's been hovering around freezing there for a week. There are people in uh, the community that are going to apply it with the supervision um, of us from down here and uh, from the uh, participation with uh, City University of New York, Hunter College and the Pratt Institute. They're using this as an educational opportunity. And you take a broad view of, let's say, the, the importance or the meaning of what you do and how you do it. 
you know, fuel contamination is a reality everywhere. And um, in these communities of the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta, they're remote and and they're they're dependent upon the outside resources that are supplied, like fuel that they use to generate power with and heat and supply fuel for their boats and vehicles and stuff like that. These uh, fuel tank farms are old military uh, operations at one time, many of them are. There's spills everywhere. And by and large, the, the uh, uh, Yupik uh, communities of the region have deferred to large uh, environmental corporations that come in and, and manage these cleanups. We're taking a different tack. We're, we're putting the technology into the hands of the people that are able to use it in their own communities. And we're, we're interested in empowering them to be able to take charge of these things, uh, supplying the support needed um, to, to uh, show people the ropes, how to make it work. This is a big deal, you know, it's uh, not only is it uh, the, the first time that uh, a micromediation at scale has been done in Alaska, but also uh, this really is a community project. And it's all connected, that, that the fact of this cleanup, the fact that the way that this is unfolding is because in a bookshelf in the new office building that was their old grocery store are a stack of pieces of paper that came from the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation. And the pieces of paper all say the same thing. They go tick, 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 tick. You have a spill, it's been recorded, you're now under institutional controls, under section blah, 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 blah. And the essence of what those pieces of paper means is that A, we know about it, B, it's been recorded, C, institutional controls means that you are responsible clean it up according to the laws, all these RCWs, and D, the clock is ticking. To find out more about my work, you can go to http colon slash slash agence, A-G-E-N-C-E dash R-L-A dot com. And to find out more about Nature's Touch, go to HTTP colon slash slash portal, P-O-R-T-L dot com slash natures, plural, hyphen, touch. Tune into part four to my interviews with recording artist Kajung, Stephen Blanchett, executive director of the Juno Arts and Humanities Council, and author, body worker, and Yukon traveler, Mike Macy. This is Nature's Touch. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah.